You're listening to Force Fed Digital. BXU Heard. What's going on? It's your boy Kingsbridge Rich, and this is the My Bronx Story Podcast. Today's episode title is Highbridge Chronicles 1989. I'm just going to jump straight into things. This is the very first joke, long format joke that I learned, and it was in the fifth grade. It's raunchy, so prepare yourself. Here it goes. There's three guys there in the woods. There's inclement weather coming, and they need to find refuge. So they see down yonder, there's this cabin, there's smoke coming out the chimney, so they know that there's people there. They hike all the way up there, it's getting late, and they go and they plead with this guy, they're like, listen, we need some place to stay, you see that the storm is coming and it's crazy, we just need to stay till the morning. So Duke comes to the door with his wife, and his wife is smoking hot. So he says, look, you see my wife here, I'll let you guys stay, but under one condition, you guys can't touch my wife sexually. So each of them get their own room. It's the evening, they unpack, they happen to see Shorty walking through the hallways, they get a good glimpse of her, she's banging, she goes into room number one. Duke cannot keep his eyes, his hands off of her, they do their thing, boom. She goes into room number two, same thing happens. He can't get his hands off of her, he goes, he does his thing, boom, boom, done. Third bedroom, same thing, she goes in there, they do their thing. Here comes the next morning, this guy goes, look, I know for a fact there's no way you guys resisted my wife. So what you guys didn't know is that I put razor blades inside her vagina. And when I pull your pants down, I'm pretty sure your dick is going to fall off. So he goes to the first person. And this is now he threatens them that not only when he pulls his pants down, that if their dicks falls off, he says that he's going to shoot them. So he pulls the pants down for the first guy. His meat drops to the floor. Boom. Blast him away. He pulls the pants down to do number two. His meat falls to the floor. Boom! He blasts him. He gets to the third person. He's already shit-talking. He's like, look, I already know how this shit's going to go down. So he takes a zipper, rolls it down. When he pulls his pants down, his meat's still right in place. So this guy's confused now. He's like, yo, there's no way you resisted my wife, man. Look at her. She's hot. And he's looking at the meat, wondering why it's attached still. And he looks at the guy and he goes, so why is it that your dick ain't fall off? And the dude hums to him. He goes, mm-hmm. <laughs> so anyway, that was my first raunchy joke that I got in the fifth grade. And it was my exposure to something pretty raunchy. And I was like, oh, shit, oral is a thing. And um, yeah, my innocence was removed a little something. But anyway, if you've been following my podcast, you already know that I talk a little bit about childhood trauma. And that would be one of those. And so today, Highbridge Chronicles in an area of the Bronx that I grew up in. And um, there's two areas I talk a lot about in this podcast, Kingsbridge and Highbridge. And so Highbridge was the first place that we made it to from Brooklyn when my parents got locked up. My grandfather lived there. And so I want to talk a little bit about 1989. I talk a little bit about mental health as well. And this has been a practice that I got through a a certain type of um, mental health I was going through with my therapist. Well, we'll pick a year and we'll talk about it. And so it's been working for that. And I pretty much got into this year and I thought about the music and I thought about the things in the area. So I'm going to walk you through the block. I'm going to walk you through some times. I'm going to walk you through my perspective. So just join me on the ride. But if you've been following the show, thank you. If you've been following me on my other social medias, now's your time to connect if you haven't. 
So you can find the link tree if you go to my IG. If you're one of my TikTok peoples, shout out to you. I have a link tree there as well. Just connect on all my socials and everything be all smooth. So thank you for all those who have been showing support. And I um I pretty much uh, have been enjoying uh, this journey. So I appreciate all your support, guys. And um, anybody wants to DM me, ask me certain questions, you already know where to reach me. But nonetheless, let's crack into it. And um, yeah, 1989, man, my first suspension in school. And I remember I got suspended because I was walking toward the bathroom. It was on the first floor, CES 73. This is in the Bronx on Anderson Avenue between 164th Street and 165th Street. And so that was my elementary school. I was in the fifth grade. And the reason I got suspended was I saw my brother. He was walking through the base, through the bathroom and uh, he's with two friends and he's a year and a half younger than me. So he was of a lower grade. And so me being a senior at that school, I'm in the fifth grade. I pass him in the hallway and in my pocket, I have a folded porno, a Playboy picture. So here's the thing, man. My grandfather had a collection. He had like this thing that looked like a, a treasure chest and it had a key to it. You opened it up and he was pretty proud of this collection. And I was 10 years old in 1989 in the fifth grade. And so I had gotten this from him because he had a massive collection. He had like what I said, a treasure chest full of vintage Playboys. And this was going from like 60s, 70s, 80s. Imagine the big poofy hairspray and, you know, chicks and stuff on the covers. And um, he had showed it to me. So I had a magazine that he proudly had given to me and I had ripped the page from it. So I'd folded this page. It was in my pocket. And it was either my brother's birthday or one of his friend's birthdays. And I remember folding it and seeing him and I thought it was cool to, as a birthday present, say, yo, here, take this. But sure enough, I get back to class and at some point between then and the end of class, I remember being called to the office and I freaking got suspended because one of them ratted on me. I don't remember if it was, it might've been my brother's friend because I think I would have held that over his head for a long time. But yeah, I wasn't a bad kid, but I had trouble academically in school. I guess this was trouble as well. It kind of points to behavior, but I got it from my grandfather. And at that age, because of the way my family was, it was kind of hard to tell what was good or bad because I had family in and out of jail and shit like that. So that was it. But my grandfather had a massive Playboy magazine and that's pretty much how I had the goods. So whatever it was, but, um, that happened that year and that kind of got my eyes open into like naked women and, and <laughs> men and, and, I, I pretty much started getting a bit sexualized in terms of seeing what took place in videos and, and pictures and stuff. And that was pretty much my first exposure. And so there was another situation I remember happening. It was my first action porno moment. So this is the first time. So we had VHS tapes. So if you remember what the setup was, the setup was pretty much usually in the bedroom, you had a tall dresser. You had a box type television on the edge tilted to a certain angle so you could watch it from bed and there'd be a VCR there set up. And if you remember VCRs, you remember that if it was like preloaded with a tape, with a VHS tape, and it was sticking out so you could see the label, it's sticking out a couple of centimeters out that flap that you push it through and it kind of does the whole motion of going in, sinking in to the things that spin the tape around and then you get your footage, right? So... If you can remember VCRs back then, you would remember that if you pressed, if you pushed the video in and it sank in and closed, oftentimes, depending on your VCR, it would play. And so this certain situation, I call it the Lupe fiasco. And so in Highbridge, you know, I had a big family, but the family that stood behind in the Bronx 
were like the ones that were addicted on drugs. And so I had a, an aunt, she was a crackhead at this time. I call this the Lupe fiasco. And so my aunt Lupe was over the house and we didn't have much family over. Our apartment, unfortunately, was like a bit messy and it was just the way my mom was. She drank a lot, she was on drugs. I don't shy away about talking about it, whatever. But this particular day, my aunt was home. So you know my mom hit the mistoline on the, you remember those thick tiles that they'd have an edge broken off and there'd be hair stuck to it on the little black edge or whatever. So just picture that type of household. You know, the house is kind of clean because we kind of had company coming over, but it was just Lupe. But Lupe comes over. My mom is on the edge of the bed speaking with her. And I'm on the other side of the bed. And so I'm laying back, 10 years old me, finds it important, I guess, to stand up in whatever you want to call it, curiosity. But I reach over to the VCR. There's a tape there, but I'm not looking at the label. Something compels me to push this tape in. And so I push the tape in. And as I've mentioned, when you push a tape in, often it will just play automatically. And to my surprise, I did just that. And the screen changes from whatever TV show was playing and immediately cuts into a porno. And so now there's a porno playing and there's moaning happening. Just imagine, ah, ah, ah. But now, if I just stopped it right there, you can imagine. And I'm just going to cut to it. I got my ass whipped because I shouldn't have pressed the video. Hey, I didn't know what was on it, but it was pretty embarrassing for my mother. But this is what made it a hundred times more embarrassing. Not only was it a, porno, a pornography that was playing, but it was a porno with clowns and face paint. And so... Yeah, this is like, this is niche porno. You understand? Like, it was one thing if you just kind of saw two people getting it on. Okay, human nature happens. But how much more embarrassing was it that I pressed play on a porno that just had a bunch of clowns with wigs and, and those red noses? And like I say, usually when I talk about my experiences as a kid, I just, big dicks everywhere. It was just, it was just a traumatic experience or whatever. But that's how it was. And I call that the Lupe fiasco. But this is some of how my upbringing looked like and stuff. It was very raunchy, and that was um, one of the ordeals I had with my first suspension. This was around the time that I'm pretty much being sexualized and being exposed to sex. And my mom had a tendency of having men from outside, the different dealers that she was with while my father was in prison, and be a little loud in the house. So this was home. This was the environment that I came up in or whatever. But about this environment... This is 165th and Nelson Avenue. This is the hybrid section of the Bronx. This is an area from 162 down to the 170s, cutting from Ogden Avenue to about Anderson Avenue, some of Shakespeare. If you're familiar with the area, I want to walk you through because we had a few things back then in around the circa 85, 86 to 89 because this is now still an area where we have abandoned buildings. This is still a time where at least the abandoned buildings, there was some type of restoration happening, but not entirely. So it was not uncommon that you still had buildings where crackheads would go into it, where there was rubble in front and mattresses and doors that we would jump on our BMX bikes. And so 1989 was now also a new wave of crack. We'd been with this crack epidemic. We'd been with this whole war on drugs. But now if you want to imagine the political climate, we're kind of getting into now a space where crack is now at a, at, a, at a new high, is riding a new wave. And us, 
the kids of that era. Many of us, our parents were addicted as well. And so I came from one of those homes. Plenty of kids in that neighborhood came from those kind of homes. And so if I can paint the block a little more, because there's so much more to this block. 165th and Nelson didn't only have drugs. And so this, so many blocks during that time, you had that building that people would serve their customers and it was like a crack building. So South Bronx, Beekman Avenue and stuff. But on the west side, where I came up from, in that particular block, it wasn't like a dealing type of block where there was buildings where there was just massive lines of crackheads, but we did have the people who move weight there. So there was a bunch of Cubans there that was moving weight. And I knew these things because my parents, my not my parents, I was, this is single mother home vibes, but my family spoke very openly in front of us. And it was, you know, often when a relative went to jail or something like that, we'd be exposed to those conversations. It wasn't things that they shied away from us. And so drug use in front of us, sex not too far off, we were very exposed to things. But now continuing to paint the picture of this block, these things are happening, but this was more big time dealers. We also had arcades. So that was the thing around then in the 80s, you had arcade rooms. And so into the 90s as well. And so at this time, I remember on this block, we had, we had two of them. But one of them was like a front. And so I remember our parents used to be like, yo, stay away from that one. And it was, they had, they had certain shelves there that you can buy things, but they were usually not stocked. That was usually the indication of a place that was a front and they sold crack out of it. I learned this later, but they had my favorite game in there. So I used to go there and play, but there was also another place that we used to play games. So I had Outrun, I had um, just uh, Pac-Man, Pac-Land and stuff. It was, it was a vibe to be in there. They had their music playing and stuff, but these were the hangout spots. A fr- uh, across the street from one of these game stops was also a chop shop. So there was this dude from the block and he was in charge of, they would, so there was usually the same type of car coming into this place and it was like a, a two-car garage. And so they'd come and they'll open up these big wood doors and, and they'll bring chassis to the block. They'll bring stolen cars. I'd learn, you know, with time that that was pretty much the spot for it. And it'd be these Mustang 5.0s. It'd be these cars that are just rolling as a frame and they'll come out a green one, a blue one, a red one, and they'll just continue to do that. So this block, just picture that this block was a block of stickball as well. So we had, you know, us kids, there was a lot of kids out there. So we had that fire hydrant by the corner that was twisted at the right angle that the water went into the block. So we'll get our cans and we'll blast the water to the second floor as high as we can get it. But we also had our dealers that were at the stores. We had two bodegas opposing corners and stuff. So you had your group of people on one side, you had the group of people on another side, a lot of old school merengue playing, a lot of old school salsa. It was pretty guala guala in that area. Once you hit like the past Ogden Avenue, like Summit Avenue and beyond, if if you know, you know, it got more African-American on that side. But we still had blacks on our side too, on Woody Crest and such. But we had a very freestyle boombox in front of the stairs block. And so it, it, it was that. So this was the 80s type of block. This wasn't like my time on Kingsbridge where we had like the block I lived on had a bunch of crack spots, like three crack spots, crack buildings where it was just clockwork and, and customers coming and being served in the buildings. It wasn't that vibe, but don't get me wrong. Although it wasn't that vibe, the type of hustling that happened was, you know, bricks and weight and stuff like that. Big time cars, beamers coming through. We had the gangs, the Latin Kings and the Nietas, and they was running the drugs on that side of town. So they had the music 
kitted coming through the, the the systems and they and their and their vehicles and stuff like that. So it was pretty much the vibe, man. Summer time, summer shootouts. Um, there was the after hours spot as well. So we were latchkey kids, and for latchkey kids, man, the issue was that you had parents most often that was addicted, and we moved about the hoods on our own. So like we walked ourselves to school, we walked ourselves back to school. And imagine the time. So this is a time of crack and we're cutting through what looks like zombies. People all over the place walking through, picking their kids up. And for the most part, many of us kids as latchkey kids encountered the shootouts. You know, we 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 remember our schools being shut down because of what was known as like the hammer man. Like the hammer man was a guy that was literally hitting people with a hammer. And um, and so we'd have school shutdowns when there was somebody who the police was looking for and we hear the helicopters or, or we'll hear the notice and stuff like that. Or there'll be a delayed dismissal and stuff. But all these things happen because so much crime was happening during the crack epidemic. And now with this new wave, 1989, there was more radios being stolen, the CD sleeve, the well, tape sleeves and stuff stolen out of cars. Um, it, it, it was just a terrible time or whatever. And we had... so. This is now, we're ushering in a new mayor, Mayor Dinkins. And you'd imagine at that time, we got a black mayor coming. So now with this black mayor, we're probably going to have somebody who's in touch, who can reach our communities, who can know this is pretty much the needs of our community, of our minority communities, of us black and brown people. And so I can imagine that for the adults at the time, there might have been some relief because now we have our first time mayor, a black mayor coming into office. And so you'd imagine now we got a new hope and, and things would change. And I could tell you now things didn't change much. And so this is all to say that the problems are much bigger than us having a black mayor. And we had a black president and I can go on and on about that. But we have big problems. The drugs don't come into the communities because we're making it. These things are coming across borders. The guns are coming from other places, other states. And so, you know, we also have our instances of police and corruption and them putting drugs into our communities and them forcing people to hustle, Larry Davis and such. These were the days. These were the times. But summertime, in that time, the memories I get were the pleasant memories. So although we had all these bad instances of drugs and crimes and, you know, the shootouts and us clearing the blocks out, we also had stickball. We also had handball and off the wall. We also had double dutch and the girls coming out to, to, to turn their ropes and stuff like that. And, and all the BMX bikes that were scattered about the floors that when your friend wasn't riding theirs, you just jump on them. Or the banana boats on those, you know, those, those bikes from back in the days or whatever. But this is the aesthetic of the 80s. 1989 brought me to a time where the music would play out front and you have the, the Silent Mornings, the Noels, you had the, the TKAs, you had Coros, and you had the George Lamonts. And it was such an innocence. And, and it's just crazy that such tough times also conjure memories of such good times. And for me, the music, the boom boxes, right? The respect for that vecina on the first floor because the music was too loud and it's getting late and you lower the volume a bit because we had respect back then. Back then, if you crowded the front of the building, you knew to move over out of respect for your neighbors that came in because that was a thing. Things are much different now. 
But back then, I remember myself at a time where it was cool for all the adults to come downstairs and sit down, and it wasn't a hookah cloud, and it wasn't people trying to stunt for the grand, but we were just chilling, listening to our music, and we were watching the kids, and, and your kids were watched by other parents as well, because if I was out of pocket, there'd be another parent there to correct me. But these were the awesome times. These were the memories that were just more pure. But we had that mix of it. And so when I reflect back on these days and these times, I think about the good and I think about the bad. But the bad being so bad that the Bronx was pretty much plagued because us as latchkey kids, we cut through the streets, we came home. And I remember for us latchkey kids, right, like that was the wave. The joke in town is is usually that like, that commercial, it's 10 p.m., do you know where your kids are at? Because most of our parents were, like, addicted to drugs. And if they weren't, parents were pretty loose back then. Like, everybody went outside. We didn't have those kids that were, like, game gamers and stuff, that they were just stuck on games in the house. You had games and you had gamers, but it wasn't like now. Like, you pretty much, a lot of times you was forced to go outside or whatever. As for me, being a broke-ass kid, not wanting to be home because home was, like, a mess, as soon as I was able to, early in the morning, I'd be outside get myself dirty as hell before I make myself, before it gets late and, and like too late. I'm, I'm talking like 9 a.m. You'd think I was working on the street or whatever, but this is little old kid me being in an area amongst other kids that were also latchkey kids. But this is an area now that black and brown minority community, yeah, we did have fun. Yeah, we did smile. Yeah, we did have our peace and we had the playful things that we did in the community and stuff. But like I said, we were riddled with the drugs and we went to school and we had to perform and our parents had to go to work and, and we had functional crackheads at that time. And we had people that lost it all to crack as well too. And so back then it was also customary that people who took crack wasn't the crackhead that you think now. When I talk about a crackhead, you picture somebody with spots on themselves. You think about a person with the worst clothes, just disheveled look and all rough. But at this time in the infancy of crack and the early stages of crack, there was people experimenting with crack. So the drug crack, as it was taken by people, there was people in suits coming uptown to buy crack. Those people out there getting addicted that were what we call functional, like functional crackheads. Like before they were not functional, they started off taking their drugs and trying to go to work and continue and shit got out of hand. People was even trying to sell their kids. Like that's how bad it got. But this is a time, 1989, that comes at the heels of a lot of racial tensions as well. And so when you mix up the suffrage that we had from the drugs and, and the victimhood of us being in these neighborhoods where like as kids, we had to deal with parents that were experimenting on crack or at the later stages where crack was really fucking them up. Or for us that maybe our parents wasn't addicted to crack. They had another form of addiction, cocaine addiction, right? A pretty expensive addiction. Nonetheless, addiction is addiction. And for us latchkey kids that had to deal with parents like that, our parents partied. And so I could tell you stories about families, members of mine that would give birth and go on a crack binge for days and just disappear. I remember on, on Woody Crest on 160, this was 165th Street on Woody Crest, there was an after hours place. And so if you know what a bill corridor is, a bill corridor, a bill corridor is one of those doors that swing open that they're attached to the floor and they connect to a staircase that goes at an angle down. And so a basement with those heavy gates that you have to swing them both open and then start walking. There was this Cuban after hours place. It was called Pototos. 
it was owned by Pototo. So I knew my mom was there because after school, I used to sometimes meet my mom because although it was an after-hours place, shit, that place would be pumping from early. But yeah, that was my mom's MO. She will be in bars and places drinking early. So it'd be 3 p.m. and that was, all right, mom is not home. Let me take a walk around the block because we wasn't, we wasn't packing cell phones back then. That was for like the big, 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 big time dealers. But the addicted houses, nah, that wasn't the case. So you know what I mean? Like you had to go on foot and go on a mission to find your mom if you didn't already know where she was at. Or we left little notes and stuff like that. She put a note on the door like, I'm at Pototos or whatever. Yo, we had the number to Pototos. Like, that's crazy. But that's when you knew where your parent was. A lot of times, we didn't even know where our parents was. Many times, the way you found out if your mom or dad was home, you go to their room and you look in the door. You look through the door and you look in the bed. And if your parent was there, if they wasn't there, then you move on to the bathroom and you just wonder. And so for many of us, we had that experience of our parents just booking it on us and figuring, you know what, they're good. And they'd give us these instructions like, don't answer the phone. I'd be told, don't answer the phone, don't open the door, and don't go to the window. So that was my thing. And this is seven years old. This is eight years old. This is nine years old. But our hoods dealing with the victimhood of drugs, right? Then the, the rest of the city and what we was going through. So to kind of paint the picture of the climate, we were dealing with other racial shit that was happening on the other side of town. And these are the other fearful aspects of the 80s and ushering, leaving the late 80s and going into the early 90s. We had the Yusef Hawkins uh, situation in the 80s where he was shot, killed uh, at 16 years old. And these are racially motivated situations. These are situations involving youth, groups of youth in certain neighborhoods like Brooklyn. And so on the backdrop of the 80s, late 80s, and and our drug-ridden areas, we also had those areas that we knew not to go into because we had white people on that side, different types of white people that just wasn't having our presence. And how blatant the racism was back then, like these instances that I'm referencing, we had the Yusef Hawkins one. We have, um, there's the William Turk one. With that one, that was a dude that he, he, he was in his car with a couple buddies and his car stalled out. And when his car stalled out, he was, um, he was dragged out of his car. So wrong neighborhood. It was a predominantly white or all white neighborhood. His car happened to stop. I don't know in the story, the details, if it was out of gas or it was, a, it was a malfunction. His car was stopped in the wrong neighborhood. They done dragged this dude out. They beat each of them and they shot him dead. Um, and, and Yusef Hawkins, there was a situation too, where there was a bunch of, um, I think that was the, no, William Turk was the Howard Beach incident. Um, but nonetheless, these are two black people, one of them being an MTA worker in his thirties, the other one being 16 year old, Yusef Hawkins was 16, shot, um, by a group of teens. They were beating them. It was about three of them. Two of them got beat up pretty bad, hit in the head. Um, but one of them was shot in the chest and passed away, shot twice, I believe it was, um, so we got all these stories that that would remind us that we were not welcome and wanted. And to be a victim of a household that struggles with promiscuity, so you're a kid, you're innocent, to the degree that you're not the one, you're the one experiencing addiction through the parent that's supposed to be responsible over you. So there's a suffrage in that because you're a victim. It's not your fault, right? But what comes with that is that trauma, right? What comes with that is that you're in a household that you're neglected. But then as a minority population, you're also dealing with the oppression that's around you. The Central Park Five, 
these teens and 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 in that story and this is being a story in 1989 where a white woman claimed that she was raped by these five and what the truth was later was that these five were incarcerated falsely and you don't get your time back and so the news would always portray us in a negative light and we'd see our faces in our communities and we're seeing each other in a negative light and we're seeing our own parents in a negative light as a kid you're carrying all that and you're walking in to school and our parents are walking in to work with all this happening in your psyche all these things weighing on you but you still you still have the expectation of performing and so this is why when i think about the victimhood and i think about myself and my journey i think about all those who were raised in this way there were so many obstacles in place and so many things that we have to hurdle over right with so many odds stacked against us that's what it's like to have the experience and still make it or that's the experience for that person that didn't make it i got people i got friends that are all fucked up in the game and so i don't entirely put it on them even those who went and 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 got all twisted and and got their addictions as well cuz this is not the life we should be living and a lot of times if you really boil it all down it all really comes down to power and who's in power and stuff like that but without having to get too much into details this is pretty much the experience right now i got a very traumatic experience that i talked through and i talk about and it has to do with elementary school and it has to do with everything that i described being in my backdrop right because there's this one particular teacher in the 5th grade so this is 1989 and this is 10 year old me yeah i did have my share of little um mishaps in school I, i i talked about earlier that suspension that i had with the little playboy page that i had of a naked lady whatever whatever it's not violent it's not you know it wasn't wise of me and i learned my lesson through it but that does that really make you a bad kid i wasn't a bad kid but you know i had bad things i was experiencing and i was witnessing but school was the place that was a a a shift in gears school was the place that you know you wasn't amongst that wicked parent of yours that was abusing you if you was one that was abused mentally abused physically abused like sometimes school was that relief but for me it should have been a relief and it would have been dope to be a relief but i had adhd that i wasn't diagnosed with i was diagnosed as an adult and so not only was home an environment that was hostile not only was home an environment that was uncomfortable but my place of escape being the streets was cool but there was also the obligation of going to school and for me going to school CES 73 Anderson Avenue 165th street right it, it was at a time where the predominantly the teachers were jewish and italian but i know now that these teachers were so out of touch and i have funny stories that kind of share about how out of touch these teachers was i remember a funny one to kind of lighten it was that i remember in the 5th grade like if you remember when you had class parties you'd have like the sodas on the window you close the window they had that gate that had that space between the window and you had those big poles with that metal hook and and it pretty much fit into the groove so you can open that door it was a heavy ass pole or whatever so you open then you get those sodas in the window and get it all ready for your school your class party or you had a pizza party cuz your class performed better than the other classes and i remember one one time in the 5th grade that that we had a party and they took the they took the lights off of it but yo these suckers was dancing reggae with each other like they was really freaking each other off so that's funny cuz to me i think it's like how the hell these 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 adults these teachers was letting us freak off in the dark <laughs> with 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 reggae and stuff like that 
But that's on one end. The other end that really resonated with me and doesn't bring a smile, that brings me to tears at times when I reflect on it, comes to a teacher that, like, he's probably gone now because he was old then, this fucking old-ass, grumpy-ass man. This guy, he was older then, so that means obviously he was my age. But at the time, he reminded me of just a wrinkly old grumpy man. This man ate cold beans out of a Tupperware. This man did a thing called speed reading, where he'll, he'll drag his fingers to the end of a sentence and then scroll it all the way down. And he'd show off in class speed reading these pages or whatever. This guy was a cruel man. He would stop to look at me and tell me, your breath stinks. And mind you, I know I've gotten into trouble. I got my first suspension in school. I, um, I'm... I had traumatic events. I shared a story on one of my other episodes where my mom had instructed my brother and I to stab a man who was under his under her bed. And it turned out she was high. He was under he wasn't under the bed. There was nobody under the bed, but we believe we was killing this person. So I remember that night, right? We didn't sleep. It was seven in the morning. We had school the next day. So at home there was shit happening that kept us from really being in the game when we got to school. Fortunate enough, reading Scores was up there, math scores up there, but my participation, man, boy, I'd be in class putting my head down, sleeping. I'm just trying to think of what are the things that could have affected Mr. Pretchup to see little old Richie at 10 years old and to feel the need to tell me, your breath stinks. And and that's, I wish that was the worst of it. Mr. Pretchup had also shared with me at a time, you're not going to be anything in life. And I think I would tell him or call him Mr. Pretchup. I don't remember myself starting off with the little... It, it could have been a tit for tat where he started off giving me a bad vibe and I'll just bounce off to him because why not? I didn't come from a household where my mom was engaged with my schooling. And so I was pretty independent in the sense that my father was in jail. My mom was a single mother dealing with her addictions and dealing with the Bronx Bronxin and being what it was in the hybrid section of the Bronx. But she had her issues and she, you know she had me young whatever so she didn't know how to parent and she didn't have much examples around her so whatever it is i give her that benefit of the doubt but my reality as a kid and not being in control of any of those factors i'm in school dealing with this racist ass teacher this power hungry ass teacher telling me i wasn't going to be shit in life not with those words but i wasn't going to be nothing in life and let me tell you that kind of drama like trauma like that sticks with you because I got insecurities in me where I can still hear his voice and I'd had I I had images of pissing on his grave. I'd have and this is a, it's against the law of course obviously I'm not I'm no hunt to look for it but to to tell you the kind of thoughts that had went to through my mind when I think about him because I've had to spend a lot of time thinking about him. I wish that there was a way for me to get that off my chest like where do you get the closure? Because even when you find yourself to be fairly successful, there's always going to be something that would be a Mr. Pretchup to you, that would be a reminder to you, that would kind of resonate with you and whatever insecurity you got inside of you. At least for me, that's how it was. Because there'd be times where I'd go for a job. I'd go for an opportunity. And this opportunity would feel a lot bigger than what my capabilities was. And because I got Mr. Pretchup on my shoulder, speaking into my soul, and the echoes of that playing out as I'm trying to pursue opportunities, I'm not believing in myself. Whatever other hater too, fuck the haters, fuck all of them. But Mr. Pretchup was such a big one. And I, 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 I'm kind of pumping him up in this story and talking about him because he was my main villain. He was like, that was a big deal for me. And I, I can't tell you I fully overcame him. 
But it was something that, for me, played out so heavy that I'd always hear him. I'd always think about it. And even when I didn't have his face in my head, the thought of it would be something to plague me. And it got worse than that, right? And, and nothing inside of me thought to tell my mother, hey, I'm being bullied by a teacher because that's what it is. Let's be real. Nothing about me ever told me. And, and that was probably because of the relationship I didn't have with my mom. But how safe, how, how unsafe was it for a kid to not only have to deal with what he dealt with home, but he also had to deal with what he dealt with in his neighborhood. And then finally, to be with out-of-touch teachers that maybe, for whatever reason, needed to be, I don't know, given sensitivity, training. Like I wish I knew what it was, but the only thing I seem to reach into is the race card. That's the only thing I can reach to. Because again, it was the political climate, but these are teachers that are going into communities that are not theirs to go and teach kids that are coming from the same type of household that I came in, and in some cases worse. I mean, I remember instances where kids would come to school because, like, with, with scars around their mouths because they, they burnt their mouths, sticking forks in, in, in sockets. And this is not even, like, first, second grade problems. I'm talking about well into fourth, fifth grade type stuff because, like, kids, I, I can tell you how many fires I lit at home that we had to put out on the low while my mom was gone. And, and we pretty much had all of that to roam. Sometimes we left the crib and went on our missions, but that's what it was like to be a kid during those times. Who the hell gives you the right to go and put the onus on a kid and to direct that type of energy to a kid to tell a kid you're not going to be nothing in life? And when I said it got worse, this is how it got worse. I got through that year. I actually passed. I didn't get left back. Fortunate for me. I moved on to junior high school, 145. That was dope. Before this podcast, I was playing Mittler's Wind Beneath My Wind. That was the that was the song that was the graduation song, and it was deep for me, but the hero in that song didn't exist because I felt, to me, I had a monster at home, and this was my experience. And I can imagine how many kids, maybe at that graduation, didn't have a parent to dedicate that to, and also had teachers they had to face, but that feeling of leaving the school and being free from that, and a summer that ushered in school lunch and going to a phase where now you're back in the streets playing those awesome games and you have the, the summer school lunch uh, plan and you're going with the vecina with that group down there to get the awesome food and the little icy you squeeze out the container. Or if it was just that you was going to the carnival. I remember on Woody Crest on 166 by the townhouses and by Nelson Park. So Nelson Avenue, between Nelson Avenue and Woody Crest Avenue, we had these carnivals that used to come into town. And I remember we used to sneak into these carnivals and um, they had everything but like a huge Ferris wheel. It was like in a small one-way street type thing where it was probably about the span of three blocks. So it started on 166th Street and it went up to where the townhouses was on Woody Crest Avenue, 167th Street or so. And I remember in the mornings we used to go and we used to sneak into all the rides because we didn't have money. So chances are we wasn't going to spend any money there. But what a summer it was to be sitting atop you know, back back in front of porches, playing our summer games, doing the school lunch, hitting the carnivals and stuff like that. And then to usher in after such a pleasant summer, the school year again. And so my brother goes to school now, and he's now in the fifth grade. He's a year behind me in, in, in school. And sure enough, he gets the same teacher, Mr. Pretcher, right? And so 
I remember my brother coming home and telling me the story. And this is the story. Mr. Pratchett is doing attendance, class attendance. He's calling names. He gets to my brother's name. I'm Ricardo Concepcion. I had just spent the fifth grade with Mr. Pratchett. Funny enough, I find out Mr. Pratchett also had a wife, Miss Pratchett, who was a teacher in the school. I wonder if she was just as racist as him. And I wish I can get that verified. But anyway, my brother now has Mr. Pratchett. Mr. Pratchett is reading the attendance in the class. Mr. Pratchett gets to my brother's name. He reads off Randy Concepcion. And the way my brother puts it is that Mr. Pratchett directs his attention to my brother. And he goes to him, he asks him, he's like, you have a brother named Ricardo? And my brother answers, yes, innocently. He looks at him, he says, your brother's not going to be nothing in life, and you're not going to be nothing in life either. Mr. Pratchett. My brother at that point, so a little bit about my brother. My brother graduated as a valedictorian. So maybe I can't recall a time that I pissed off Mr. Pratchett to whatever degree for him to say that. But I know I had my little, you know, share of things like I shared earlier, my suspensions or whatever. I can tell you I wasn't a bad kid, but I definitely was a misguided kid. I definitely was a neglected kid. I definitely was a stressed kid. I definitely was a kid that was impacted by what many people was impacted by in impoverished conditions, in single home, in single parent home conditions, right? In the conditions you'd expect from poverty and, and drug abuse in the home and promiscuity. I had all of that shit, right? All of that was, was part of my normal home. But my brother, on the other hand, he, he fared off well academically. He didn't have the challenge I had with undiagnosed ADHD, something I learned I had later. He fared off well in class. He did super well academically. But before he can even prove himself in class, my brother was approached by this type of hostility and told he wasn't going to be. Before even displaying something to make this man, this adult, this teacher share this thing with this now 10-year-old kid in front of him with no reason, no proof of that. You decide to go and make an attempt to reduce this kid. How can I not think that it's racism? How can I think it's anything else? Because my brother didn't even have time to react. My brother didn't have time to lead him or give him this impression. That impression might have probably might have already been forged in his mind as a racist. But anyway, that was Mr. Pratchett. And Mr. Pratchett, if I can have a word with you, if I can say anything aside from fuck you, is that I'm here now living life happy. I got to tell you, I heard you. I got to tell you, I had to also shut you up. And you know what was dope? A big fuck you my brother gave you is that he graduated valedictorian. And it almost went to somebody else. And my brother had to actually go and appeal to the principal and staff and show them, look, these are my grades. There was another candidate for it, and he was going to get it. And my brother spoke up, and he got it. And so for the family, at least, Mr. Pratchett, I wish you could hear this, but you get a big fuck you, bro, because that's not cool, and you don't talk to kids that way. You don't talk to anybody that way for that fact, but especially kids. And I wish I had more than a word to have with you, but I hope that there was a pain that you experienced from being like that, or I hope that you really got a chance to change your ways and understand the impact of your words. I can't imagine any person being a husband with that kind of heart and having a successful marriage. I would only hope that those words were projections and somewhere in that Grinch type heart that you had, you can only share what you felt about yourself because you didn't have enough love to reach inside and to give and to display. And these projections were just proofs of who you was because I'm none of what you call me. And my people are none of what you think of them. 
My people are suffering through something. My people are rising above. Our people are plagued with something that is not our fault that resides within our community. We're not the gun manufacturers. We, for a long time, weren't the people bringing these drugs into our communities. And so you get a big fuck you for looking at a kid and daring to speak that way. And I can imagine how many other people you spoke because it couldn't have just been me. And I wish I could hear these stories, but it's unfortunate to say that I'm sure that there's plenty of other stories like that. But for today, this is just my Bronx story.